Well, good morning. We are thankful that you are here. Our crowds continue to go up a little by little. We do have a, a large group that added to our number over here this morning that you may not have recognized. We're thankful to have a group from Faulkner University passing through. They've been up at CYC this weekend up in the Pigeon Forge area, and we're thankful that they have come our way. Uh, they've already put about three hours behind them. I don't know what you've accomplished this morning. I've not done a whole lot, but uh, they've already put three hours behind them and headed back down to the Montgomery area. Some of you may recognize Mike Horn. Mike was with us, and it's a couple years ago now. It feels like forever after 2020, but Mike was with us a few years ago with his work with the Lads to Leaders program. He came and conducted one of our classes and talked about the program that morning, and we really appreciated that and enjoyed being able to get started with that. Philip Randolph's the other one that I just met this morning that I have not known before, but we're thankful for them and the young people that are with them, and we're just thankful to be here together this morning, and we hope that you will continue to join us as much as you feel comfortable. We're thankful for our elders, as has already been stated and prayed about for their encouragement, for their willingness to seriously consider everything going on. But at the same time, we're really excited about hopefully being able to be back together a little more normal, uh, a little more often as we're used to, to continue to encourage ourselves uh, with the Word of God. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about the family. We've been talking about the home. We've been talking about marriage. We've talked about statistics and things that are going on with our families and in the world today. And we want to finish that up this morning as we think a little bit more about what God has to say about family. You know, we've, we've begun almost each week in Genesis chapter 2. We've talked about God creating all things and creating them male and female. God seeing that these things are good, that the two becoming one flesh. We've talked about the beginning of the family. We go over to Genesis 4 and we think about Cain and Abel being added to that family. We think about the family unit as it's supposed to be, as God designed for it to be. We move forward through the Old Testament and we think about the way that the children of Israel were like a family. They grew to be so large at the beginning of the book of Exodus that there was, there was trouble with Pharaoh. And so then they begin this journey and they travel around, but they're together as a family. They struggle as a family. We've been talking on Wednesday nights in our auditorium class about the prophets and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and what the children of Israel went through as a family. But as we've talked about those prophets, they point the way forward time and time again. A few passages that are familiar to us. Isaiah chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2. That all are pointing the way and prophesying and talking about this great thing to come. This great kingdom, yes we might even call it a family. And all of those chapter 2's in the Old Testament point the way forward to Acts chapter 2. And on that day, this great family begins this wonderful occasion in which we see the church established. The Lord's church beginning that day with people joining together. And the book of Acts is so encouraging to us. And even in times like 2020, we look back at Acts chapter 2 and moving forward through Acts to see what they did how they were interacting together as a family. You see, it's beneficial for us as we conclude this series on family to think about how the Bible speaks of the church as a family. When we look through the pages of the New Testament, we see that the church is constantly referred to in terms that describe the family that we know. So it's important that we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and we think about these families all throughout time. Because the church is similar to a family. In fact, it would help us to think about that in those terms. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at some designations, if you will. First of all, we see in the New Testament that the church is described as the brotherhood. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood. And so we think about the fact that the church is oftentimes called the brotherhood. We take pride in that, especially preachers sometimes and members who we talk about visiting folks in the brotherhood. That signifies and carries with it something a little stronger than a co-worker, doesn't it? I mean, I love my co-workers that I worked with before I started here. I had a good relationship with them. But they're not, most of them were not a part of the brotherhood, this family that we call the church. We continue on through the New Testament and we think about the fact that we're called children. In Romans chapter 8 and verse number 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are called children of God. You know, it's oftentimes something that encourages us. We look back on our parents and we're thankful for that, to be called children and to have that relationship with someone. So not only is the church referred to as the brotherhood, yes, but it's also referred to as children. We are called children of God. And yes, that usually carries with it a very positive connotation. But then thirdly, we would notice that we are called a household as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 as a whole. But Paul would say to those in Ephesus, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. We're familiar with that. Those are people that we don't know, that we don't talk to. Strangers and foreigners. You are no longer that. But you are now fellow citizens. You are now fellow citizens with, with the members of the household of God. That's what we appreciate. Being considered a part of a household. Brotherhood. Children. Part of the household of God. That brings with it something that encourages us. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. Yes, the name that we carry, that we bear from our family, causes us to have certain feelings and emotions. It sometimes it gives us certain rights and privileges, depending on the family that you might have been born into. But we are encouraged when we think about being a part of this family, the church, the brotherhood, being called children, and yes, even part of the household of God. As we draw this out a little further and think about some things that the church and family share in common, because, by the way, this is by design. This is not something that, that was just thrown together. The Bible is not some type of alphabet soup that is just tossed in there and we hope that it makes sense and that it all connects. God, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to these writers, made it so that we could understand, so that we could know these things. And so He uses some of these commonalities that people would understand. And the first is that both our earthly families and our spiritual family has a head. Ephesians 5.23 says it very plain and simple. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. We know that the husband is to be the head of the wife, the husband is to be the head of the home, but Christ is the head of the church. We begin to see this pattern, this example. Husbands are not to rule as, as dictators solely with, a, with an iron fist, just doing whatever they feel like, but they rule as Christ is head of the church. And we begin to see this example that we're going to continue here in just a few moments as we think about some of these other responsibilities that we have. We understand that there is a head, both in the home, in the family, and in the church. Number two, both share a father. We know in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 when Jesus is praying what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, but when He's teaching His disciples and those gathered there how to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. What a, what a way to begin what a comforting way to begin. Maybe you've not known what to pray before. But when you think about talking to God, not in an irreverent way, you know, but, 
but in a, a loving way, in a relationship kind of way, as you would approach your earthly father, then it begins to, to put prayer in a different light. It helps us to pray with a little more peace and comfort. So in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 1, John says, Behold, behold what love the Father, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. The Father loves us, just as we love our children. As we see love in our families here upon this earth, God our Father loves us. So yes, our earthly families have a father, and we've talked about this from time to time over the last few weeks. I understand that not all families are perfectly made up the way that God intended them to be, whether it's something such as the nature of divorce, whether it's something of the nature of death or someone just leaving their family. We don't always have the best example of earthly fathers. We have a perfect example in God, our Father. And so, yes, earthly, fathers, earthly families have a father, and so do our, does our spiritual family. Let's talk about one that's not as fun to talk about for just a minute, but another commonality that the family on earth and our church family should share in is in discipline. We talk a lot about the fact that our kids don't enjoy discipline. And I'll say that because we don't enjoy discipline very often, the church doesn't usually practice what is sometimes called church discipline or withdrawing, or maybe the better phrase is withholding fellowship from someone, but it's Interesting, when you read a passage such as 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 6, Paul would write to those folks there and say, but we command you, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Go down to verses 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. But again, by inspiration, Paul does not leave us hanging. It doesn't have to be something that is just so difficult that we should avoid it. It doesn't have to be so hateful that we don't want to do it. But notice verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy but admonish him as a, there's that word again, brother. You see, when we practice church discipline, it should go beyond just hating someone. That's what people would say. I even saw an account on, on Facebook over the last week. Someone who a congregation was withdrawing fellowship from, pasted it all over Facebook. Next thing you know, everyone's talking about it. And everyone's talking about those hateful, unloving Christians in that church of Christ. Paul says we're not supposed to do it as an enemy. And I don't know that that, wasn't, that, that wasn't, was done in that way. But we're to admonish them as a brother. But we are supposed to practice these things, to practice discipline, because it's important. Just as we look at our children and we think that if they're left to their own devices to do whatever they want to do, there's no telling what they would decide to do because they're children. They need to be disciplined. And yes, sometimes we as Christians, when we struggle and fall short, we need to be disciplined as well. When we think about some of these things, it's encouraging to note that there is a, a pattern. There is a similarity. There are commonalities. We're not left to wonder what to do. We know what we should do in our earthly families. We should consider that as well with our church family. And then we think about purpose. Both share a purpose. And that purpose is plain and simple. To get its members to heaven. That's the goal. That's the purpose that we should understand even in the home, that we get all of, all of our members to heaven. And yes, in the church. You see, there's some added benefit. There's no doubt about that. Our families, our homes teach us about how to live. 
They teach us how to make money, how to cook, how to clean, how to be a member of a family, how to do all of these things, how to function in society. That's a benefit. They protect us. They take care of us. They feed us. They clothe us. That's great. But the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose is to see that all members get to heaven. When we think about the church, the church does that sometimes. We provide for others. We help you take care maybe of a bill from time to time or provide you food if you're in need of something. There's some added benefit maybe, but the main purpose is to see that all of its members get to heaven. It's interesting to think that, that should, we should share that in common. Hopefully, and usually the church shares that, but do our homes, do our families share that? It's something that we have to consider. Before we get into thinking about some responsibilities for just a moment, it's also encouraging to think that the entrance is the same. It's not something that we don't understand, but, but at the entrance is the same, and that is by birth. You recall John chapter 3, we all know verse 16, everybody in the world just about can quote John three sixteen. but many of you are familiar with what comes before that. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he has this question, and he asks him what he should do, and he looks at these things and he struggles with exactly how he is supposed to be. John chapter 3 and verse number 3, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born by birth, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we love, we love Nicodemus' response in verse 4, right? Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And we picture Nicodemus scratching his head and wondering, even out loud to Jesus, what? What are you talking about? I'm old. I can't enter again to my mother's womb. I don't understand this. But yet Jesus is making the point that entrance into the family, into the church family, is by birth. In verse 5, Assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The body, the church, the family. And so yes, the entrance is by birth. And so we understand that as well. When we sort of draw this parallel between our families, our earthly family, and our spiritual family, the church. When we move on for just a few moments and begin to think about some responsibilities that we share in, in his book on the church by our brother Jack Wilkie called Church Reset, he says it this way, Christianity is not just about getting good at observing our own religion or religion on our own. We are made to need each other. The first step is to start thinking of the church in terms of community, in terms of family. That's what we've already been doing. Thinking about the church in in terms and in ideas of a family, of a community. But the second step is to see what the Bible tells us to do in this community. You see, it's great that we think about it as a family, but what are we supposed to do in that family? Let's think about that for just a few moments. We share some responsibilities. You're going to see some words if you have your bulletin in front of you and you're filling out the notes. You may already see some common words on all of these. One another. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that discuss this idea of being something to one another. But let's think about just a few this morning as we think about some responsibilities that we share. Because we're part of a family, right? We share in responsibilities Our kids despise having to empty the dishwasher and do the laundry and and help around the house like that. But we tell them, you're a part of this family. You've got responsibilities. What about in the church? Am I allowed just to show up and sit here just to watch from time to time online and feel like I've done enough? I think the Bible paints a picture that there's a little more to it than that. Number one, we're to love one another. 
We know that. It's pretty simple and understood. In John chapter 13 and verse 34, between a couple of great passages, we look at the beginning of John 13 and Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And we go back to that a lot and we think about how encouraging that is. We go forward to John chapter 14 and he makes those great statements about going and preparing a place and, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. But sandwiched in between there, John 13 and verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. How, Jesus? Wait a minute. What if the disciples could have stopped him? What do you mean? How am I supposed to do that? What does this look like? What do you mean when you say love one another? As I have loved you, that you love one another. Now that's got a little more serious. Now we're talking about something a little more difficult. You mean I don't just get to show up, I don't just get to offer a prayer maybe every once in a while, but as you have loved me, I am to love others? Now it gets a little sticky, it gets a little hard. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another. How? Peter, how are we supposed to do that? Fervently. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. I know you know what love looks like. I think you know what love looks like. If you ask the world, it's a very convoluted message of what love looks like. Most of the world would say that love looks like no discipline, but we've already talked about the fact that we have to practice discipline. We don't have time this morning to get into all the details of that, but I hope you know what love looks like. If you've been reading your Bible as we've been trying to encourage each other to do, you continue to see biblical pictures of love all throughout the Bible. But we are to love one another. And that will take on different looks at different times. You see, I'm not always in need. But there's going to be a time when possibly I am in need and I need you. And there's times that you will need me. There are times you may need something of a physical nature. There's times you may just need prayers of a spiritual nature or encouragement of some sort or fashion. We are to love one another. We know that, but do we really practice it? Number two, you are to confess your sins to one another. Here's where it starts to really get a little sticky. Because we love to show up here. We love to profess our love. We love to talk to each other and share in the good times and to talk about our baseball teams or to talk about our job or talk about things like that. But do we confess our sins to one another? James 5, 16, confess your trespasses or confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. For what purpose? That you may be healed. That you may have the good life that you're supposed to have, the abundant life that Jesus promised. But it comes not through pretending we're perfect and not just pretending we're sinners but in the happy medium of doing our best. Living our best life in the way that we can, being as spiritual as we can, but also understanding that we mess up. We fall short. And when we do, we've got to confess our sins to one another. It hurts. It's a struggle. It's something that we may struggle with the most in the churches of Christ. Do we really practice this? Because it's a responsibility that we have. Because it carries over into our next one. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we are to bear one another's burdens. That carries over not only just maybe with paying the bill or buying the food, but with the spiritual as well. With praying for one another. Galatians 6, a stern warning from the Apostle Paul to those in Galatia. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. Notice what he says there, that we are to restore others. Who's to do that? You who are spiritual. We get a bad rap sometimes as Christians because people say, you're better than everyone else. You act like you're better than everyone else. That's not it at all. That's not the spirit of Christ. But if we practice what Paul is saying here, the only way that we can go to someone is that we do our best to be spiritual. We do our best not to be perfect, but as Christ-like as we can be. The picture that we enjoy a little more, it's kind of a little more humorous to us, of course, is the one that Jesus gives about the beam sticking out of your eye, the plank sticking out of your eye, or the little itty-bitty speck. Jesus says you've got to get it out of your own eye so that you can help someone else. We're to bear one another's burdens. I don't know about confessing sin being the worst, maybe, the, the thing that we're worst at, but I think we're pretty bad at this sometimes too. We don't want to share in our struggles. We don't want to share with others. Some people say, well, I, I don't want to admit I've got a weakness, or I, I just don't know that I want everyone else to know that. I'm not suggesting by any means we put everything out there, every single bit of our lives, but we're told to bear one another's burdens. We're told to confess to one another. And maybe as we think about being a family a church family here together, we need to seriously consider whether or not we're practicing these things. It's hard. It's hard. We don't want people to think less of us. But it's a responsibility that we have. And we need to be practicing it. And maybe in connection with that, the fourth one here is that we forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. That goes along with correction, doesn't it? With restoring, with encouraging, that when you do that, you're also kind. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And here it is one more time for you this morning. How? How is it, Paul, that I'm supposed to do these things? How am I supposed to forgive someone else? Even as God in Christ forgave you. Whew. That's really tough. You mean I just don't have to forgive once? Or I don't have to forgive as my friend forgave me or my parents did? No, as Christ. As God in Christ forgave you. That's how you are to forgive one another. It makes it tough. Sets the bar really high. And it makes us sometimes want to avoid that altogether. But as Christians, if you're a part of this family, if you're a part of this church, we are to forgive one another. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes we get our feelings hurt. Sometimes we get our feelings hurt when we talk to each other. We say things that we shouldn't say. But we have to do our best to forgive one another. We can't work together we can't reach the loss of this community and the world when we're divided. When half the folks on this side are mad, half the folks on the other side or vice versa. Loving one another. Forgiving one another. Bearing one another's burdens. Is that a picture of the church here at Saudi? Is that a picture of you? As we often say, it begins with each one of us. You see, I hope that that is what the church at Saudi here is like. But we have to understand is that if we will begin with ourselves and start with me, then maybe, yes, as a group, we will be able to accomplish these things. We will fulfill our responsibilities. As we begin to kind of conclude these thoughts and think about the church for just a few moments, this is the goal. The goal of all these things that we've talked about is that everyone who is a part of this body, everyone who is a part of this family, is a part of this church, everyone becomes or is a valuable contributor and not just a detached customer. If you think about 
some of these congregations, some of these churches, denominations around the world that have 800, 900 people to get to, together, there's no set number. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a large group together, certainly any way like that. But how many people in a group that gets to be too large simply become, those people become customers. They'll show up, they'll sit in the pew, they may even amen, they'll take the Lord's Supper, but they're simply detached from the work of the church. Our goal here with our leadership of elders should be that everyone is a valuable contributor and not just a consumer. Not just a consumer. You see, we may have more to say about this in the coming weeks. I've been considering it for a while now. Heard several people speak about it. There are a lot of drawbacks that have, have happened because of the pandemic and because of the coronavirus. There's a lot of good things that have happened. There's a lot of bad things that have happened. I'm afraid one of the unintended consequences that has happened, one of the good things, let me say first, should be that we're able to live stream. People went out, they bought cameras, they watch on their TV at home, and if you feel unsafe about being here, we're thankful for that opportunity. I'm afraid that one of the drawbacks that we've created, though, is that people have become, become consumers. They're willing to sit at home and become consumers of content as opposed to valuable contributors to the church. And we may have more to say about that in the coming weeks, and it's a difficult thought to process. But our goal should be that we are contributing to the work of the church here. We've tried to say for over a year now that if you are uncomfortable, if you are unsure, we try to be understanding of that. But at some point, we all have to understand that we cannot simply sit back and be customers or consumers of the Word of God, of the church. We have to be active, valuable contributors. It's why we challenge you, and we say sometimes not to say that I go to church. And oftentimes we kind of laugh that off and we sort of say, you know what I mean. You know, you know what I mean when I say I go to church. It's not a big deal. But it is kind of a big deal. Because I don't just go to church. This, this doesn't do anything for me. The paint, the wood, the carpet doesn't do anything for me. This doesn't love me or pray for me or care for me. But you do. I don't go to church. I go to be with the church because you love me and pray for me and care for me. And I want you as much as me to be a valuable contributor to this church. And here's the final thing. We've listed all these holes in the family for these last few weeks. We've talked about statistics. We've talked about people who are struggling. We've talked about those who get divorced. We've talked about parents who leave, parents who die. And we've looked around us and said that very often the family is incomplete. And here's the thing about the church. Our church family fills those gaps. Our church family is here so that we don't have to worry if something like that happens to us. Yes, it will be traumatic. Yes, it will be sad and horrible in a way. But we know that our church family will care for us and pray for us and love us. I don't go to church because these things don't do anything for me, but you do something for me. And I want to be here with you. And I hope that you feel the same way. When we think about our church as a family, our congregation as a family, it should bring pride and joy to us. It should cause us to feel good. It should cause us to want to be together. When we are here on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, we're here to worship God and to study His Word. But we almost always leave encouraged because we're together. And we bring joy to each other. We bring fulfillment. 
I know. I've said it many times before, but I know that if something major happened in our lives, I would be taken care of. And it's not in some divine way or miraculous way, but it is in a divine way and that God has given me a church family that I can be a part of and you would care for me just as I would do anything for you. When we all together are valuable contributors and not just customers or consumers. I've got one final question. I'm going to ask you to put your Bibles up and get your songbooks out if you want to use those. But I've got one final question for you. And I need to say as well that last week, some of you weren't with us, of course, and if you were watching online, you weren't able to hear everything. But last week I had to scold our sister Brenda Shipley, jokingly scold her, because she stole my sermon at the end of service. I had to get on to her because I had to look at her and say, you, you took my sermon for next week. What's the point in me standing up here and saying all of these things if a beautiful sister in Christ can stand before us and share the wonderful glories of being a part of the church family? She said everything that I was trying to say. Thank you. I love you. I wouldn't be here without you. And we all felt good inside because we knew that we were working the way we should, helping a brother and sister in Christ. And our sister, she has lost her husband. And we work together to see each other through the struggles as contributors so that we can fulfill the purpose of all being together again in heaven. So the question this morning is very simple as we conclude. Are you a part of God's family? It's that easy. Yeah, there's lots of other things involved, and our family gives us grief, and there's difficulties, and it's not easy. We've got to get up on Sunday morning, and we've got to, to do other things to help others. It's not always perfect and neat and easy, but it's the greatest blessing in all the world. We talk about the importance of marriage over the last few weeks, and choosing a spouse and beginning your family is the second greatest choice in all the world, because the first is, are you a child of God? Have you been added to the church by the Lord, being baptized for the remission of your sins? Because if you've not, this morning we're about to sing this song that says, Come to Jesus. Because you see, it's not about me. It's not come to the preacher. One of our elders will come forward. It's not about them. But come to Jesus. Because it's there. Confessing the name of Jesus as Lord that you can. Be baptized. Where the preacher doesn't do anything and the elders don't do anything, but the blood of Christ washes away your sins. And you can be added to the church. And you can enjoy all these wonderful things that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of this morning when you are a contributor and a part of a church family. But maybe you're here this morning and you've done that, but in times past you've wandered away, you've struggled. Maybe you've been a little uneasy because you know that you've taken your church family and you put them at arm's length. You've said, you know, that's great, but I just don't have time right now. I can't do those things. And when we do that, what happens is sin enters our lives. And maybe you're here this morning and, and there's sin in your life. We're thankful for God's second law of pardon, that we can repent of our sin, pray to Him for forgiveness, that He will do just that and we can again walk in the light as He is in the light. You see, it's not one of those things that once you're a part of the family and you mess up one time, you're, you're shunned. No, you can confess your sin this morning and be restored to your rightful place as a part of this family, working together, helping yourself and others and me get to heaven. But you've got to be a part of God's family. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you are and you're struggling, you need the prayers of this church or you need to repent of sin, we would love to encourage you. Come to Jesus, even now as we stand together and as we sing.